Uh, please welcome Jack Halberson, uh, Zachary Drucker, and Reese Ernst. Thank you guys all so much for coming. Oh, nice. Hello. There's some fierce competition in Los Angeles. Yeah, and you guys are in between a million things. Uh, there was a transparent panel this morning, and there's a trans shorts program later, right? So we're uh, very lucky to have Zachary and uh, Zacharies, uh, <laughs> as the book calls them together here. Um, <laughs> And we're hoping that we'll have a sort of wide-ranging conversation about art, love, photography, and, of course, um, what it means to represent transgenderism uh, right now. One thing I want to say just to frame the conversation is that it's my opinion that this is a truly... Uh, original intervention into transgender representation this book. Most often um, trans images have been represented in these sort of isolated ways, you know, and you can think of the work of Diane Arbus, all the way through in fact to Kathy Opie's work, even Kathy Opie's work are these singular images. Almost never, however, do you see trans people involved with one another engaged in intimate relation, mirroring each other, and, um, and sharing, sharing the experience. So it's a beautiful book. Uh, we have lots of different topics we want to cover. Of course, we'll eventually get to a conversation with you as well. So why don't we just um, begin our conversation with hearing about um, how the book came together. There's different narratives within the book. Uh, at various points, we hear that the book is sort of Accidental. It came together through creating, constructing, amassing a material archive. And at other times it sounds like it was constructed. So maybe if we start with asking that question, how did the book come to be? Yeah, or we can even go farther back and talk about how the relationship, the relationship came to be sure. and the kind of personal history we have. Um, we're really honored to have so many of you in the room, so many people who have been integral to our lives and to this project. Um, but Wu Sang is here, who introduced <laughs> Reese and I. Wow. Uh, in 2008, Wu and I were the door whores at a club downtown. That is the official term. Um, and Reese just moved to town to, uh, and you know, to go to Cal Arts for his masters. Yeah, I um, knew Wu back from Western Massachusetts. We went to college in the same town, and when I moved to LA to start Cal Arts for my MFA, I called up Wu and stayed at Wu's house. And Wu was like, "You have to meet my friend Zachary, Zachary, Zachary," <laughs> for the first couple of weeks of staying there. So I think um, you kind of dragged me to a sort of random thing, and I was not really properly dressed for it. And that's where we met. And it was um, I was brand new to Los Angeles, very new to my transition, um, on the verge of a whole new chapter and so it was a very kind of fresh open time for me so reason we're both transitioning in 2008 and or kind of in the early stages of transition and saw i think in each other uh the direction we were heading in right like as trans people um and quickly 
sort of fell into a romantic relationship and photographed the whole thing just for us, just as a sort of visual diary. Um, so there was never an intent to show the photographs as art. Um, we both are art makers and filmmakers. Um, but the funny thing is that we didn't consider this particular series of photographs the work it was just kind of something that was happening alongside what we were doing I think that um, in some ways um, this project couldn't have happened at a different time uh, in the same way because we were sort of standing on the shoulder of, of the trans people who had came before us and the kind of representation that we had come up with and we were sort of emboldened to be more ourselves and more queer and more different um, but yet it was pre- Instagram. It was pre kind of putting self documentation out into the world like crazy. The word selfie wasn't really a thing. So it was kind of at this sort of sweet spot where we were sort of uh, politicized enough to be transgressive in this particular way, but it wasn't commonplace yet to self document. And so we weren't considering this to be a public record. Um, we both come from, well, both of us have photography backgrounds. Um, I had worked in auto ethnographic experimental film when I was a lot younger with a sort of practice of uh, creating self-reflective uh, work or work that reflected my community, what I didn't see created out in the world. And those types of impulses were sort of what were guiding us and not really you know, an intentional formal project. So what ended up happening is we uh, were in relationship uh, for about six years. We've since separated. That's a spoiler. Um, <laughs> but we still work together and are you know, in relation in other ways. Um, but what, what happened over the course of the six years is that we, uh, you know, went through a lot of different changes. One of which was our genders. You know, we kind of grew up. We became more um, confident artists, and we're in this, you know, in relation for six years. So that's what it ends up documenting. Um, it's also part of our both of our practices to not sort of lead with trans issues and not be didactic or be kind of transplaining. So the fact that we're transitioning. <laughs> The fact that we're transitioning becomes kind of the background or the incidental sort of context, but you know maybe the the plot of that afternoon was something else, you know. And when you were talking about how you haven't seen um, trans people in dialogue and so much uh, depicted, it almost reminded me of like the Bechdel test of yeah. like having a conversation between two converse, two trans people in which the conversation is about, isn't about transitioning. Mm -hmm. It's about something else. It's about life. Mm -hmm. Tell us what the Bechdel test is, for people who don't know. The Bechdel test, uh, you remember Alison Bechdel said that you, you have to have a, in a movie, can two characters, two female characters talk about something other than, than a man? Uh, and if, if they can't, uh, they fail the Bechdel test and, you, you know, this feminism is nowhere in the movie. Um, so the question was, can trans people talk about something other than transitioning, right? right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, Reese, that this this project couldn't have come at another time. And there's definitely a sense of history in, in the book and uh, of your this particular moment in history. I mean, we can, some of us anyway, can remember back to the time when transgender people were only a spectacle, um, only bodies to be looked at and asked questions about, um, you know, play, places for voyeurism and so on. So to have this kind of intimate circuit of looking that you create in the book is is quite extraordinary. Um, can you say something though about why 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 couldn't it have come before, or what it, what is it about this moment, and how do you think about the book in relationship to? 
that history of transgenderism, which is so present for you, in particular, Reese, with these, the film project that you're working on, on uh, particular trans individuals in history and so on. Right. Well, Zachary and I both are interested in um, trans history, and I think both come from a place of wanting to see our heritage, our sort of cultural heritage, that the things that we didn't grow up with, with you know, where was the app, the, the living in this kind of vacuum where you don't see trans lives depicted at all, let alone what happened 30 years ago or 50 years ago in terms of trans lives. So I think that's been a, um, a motivation for both of us in our work in different ways. Um, I just recently completed a series of shorts on figures in trans history called We've Been Around, and you can watch them all for free online at we'havebeenaround.com. Uh, Zachary's done quite a lot of work with, uh, well, I should let you speak to yeah, that. Yeah, well, with trans elders and kind of creating dialogues um, and sites for exchange um, through art making and video with people like Flawless Sabrina, Hollywood Lawn, um, Kate Bornstein, some, some kind of epic grandmothers of the trans movement. Um, but yeah, I think there was something else I was going to say about why this particular moment in time, and Reese, you alluded to it, is um, I think we are a product of the 1990s, ultimately, like in terms of our development as adolescents. Um, when there was a counterculture kind of movement of queer politics and feminism, and we were both really immersed in that in different places, um, and took ourselves seriously as artists and were supported by our families. And all of these pieces are kind of missing pieces for um, previous generations of trans people. Um, so I think um, you know we were able to create this body of work not as a side project um, in in terms of like tr you know trying to survive and not you know being able to focus on like a creative pursuit mm -hmm. um, and hopefully it's laying of groundwork for a future generation to take it even farther. But it, it, the the book is also it, it's it's deeply interested in the not just the history of trans people but the history of representation and there's that photograph by Diane Arbus of flawless Sabrina uh, in in one moment and then other you know figures within trans culture sort of wander through the book in some way and I wonder if you could you know maybe we, we could talk about um, this really interesting position that you guys have as both avant-garde producers of art that isn't intentionally simply interested in exposing you know trans truths but does come from that experience but then also being involved in the production of this TV moment that people have called the transgender tipping point and this sense of exposure and visibility and mainstreaming uh, and then of course Zachary your participation in I Am Kate, uh, those kinds of things. How difficult is it to bridge the, the, um, some of the gaps between practicing your own art and, and being engaged in your own sort of avant-garde practice and then being engaged in this mainstream moment of visibility and exposure? 
Can you go first? Well, sure. I mean, I <laughs> I like to think that these all these things influence each other, and kind of in my sort of personal ecosystem, there's there's a really uh, important feedback between all of them, and. Um, you know, when we got back from the Whitney Biennial, we were just starting to work on season one of Transparent, and it was a very funny moment because it sort of felt like the art world was sort of, had a little crush on television, and then television was like, that's really, what's going on in the art world? This is kind of cool. So it was sort of like cross-pollination. Um, in a way that's really, you know, it's not a coincidence that, you know, all these things are kind of happening at the same time. Um, I don't, I, I just personally, in my own practice, like to kind of move the pots around the stove as much as possible and try to, you know, for instance, uh, let these things influence each other. So, for instance, in uh, the relationship uh, body of work, how we installed it, the Whitney, and how we've, you know, shown it in the, in the actual book has, to me, a narrative sensibility that comes from, you know, both of our, I mean, speaking for myself, my, you know, training and narrative of construction and working in narrative filmmaking, and we made uh, when we made a film called Chigan Road that played alongside relationship at the Whitney, um, very experimental film and premiered here in Los Angeles at the Hammer right. Museum. Um, you know, we took uh, an avant-garde form and tried to apply the hero's journey and sort of other elements of narrative construction again to this kind of more avant-garde uh, form. And you know, then on Transparent, it's or whatever. I'm, I can't speak for I'm. Kate, but you know, for these more mainstream projects, trying to bring in some of that artistic practice and sensibility at whenever possible, and certainly the political perspective into that as well. And one, I mean, it's, it happens in all different kinds of small ways, but like for one example that I like to use is uh, the t transparent title sequence, which I make, um, to me, comes out of a practice of making experimental films. I don't have a background in making title sequences for, t for television. You know, I'm not doing the motion graphics whole crazy thing. To me, it's a 45-second art film. Um, and so the way these things can coexist and kind of marinate together is really important. And I've always been a fan of, you know, and you see it in television and uh, independent filmmaking, that kind of cross-pollination. And so I think it's, you know, we're all connected. All these worlds are connected. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I agree with everything we said. Uh, I think it's in so necessary right now that trans folks speak to the platforms that they have access to, and those platforms are always going to be changing and shifting according to the cultural circumstances um, that we find ourselves in. So, you know, the marriage equality kind of passed, and there was for so long in, you know, within that social movement um, there was anticipation and, and a question of would trans people ever kind of make it into that agenda um, and it seems to have come to fruition to some extent um, the trans civil rights movement is uh, you know, I think a few years old. Like, I think we can all kind of collectively agree that it's been over the past three years. I just read this article that was written in 2013, and it could have been written like 30 years ago. And it was astounding. It was written in 2013. The language that was being used, everything about this article seemed so old to me. And it was a revelation to kind of absorb just like how quickly we've uh, made progress in, in three years. Um, I think that we found ourselves in a really unique position as 
cultural producers and artists and in Los Angeles like you have this proximity and this is a conversation in the LA art world I think that's been happening forever like since the the synthesis of the LA art world um, and there's a long history of avant-garde artists being influenced by Hollywood in different ways whether it's uh, just by scale sometimes in terms of um, what's possible and space and um, so many of the artists I revere um, I think are influenced in ways by Hollywood I mean I think you kind of have to take a position in a way Um, but it's also the only city it's the only economy in this country that's centered around a creative industry Um, so that's I think uh, part of the privilege of, of living in Los Angeles, um, transparent is exceptional. It's it's not uh, going to be the new norm, you know. I mean, I I hope that you know it's our greatest hope that in uh, sort of bringing as many trans folks onto the production chain as possible, that we will all kind of have the tools to make our own shows. Um, down the line but it's certainly the beginning of something new Um, and it's incredible to be a part of it yeah well you know um, both of you in a a way are talking about the different platforms that become available so this this moment of transgender visibility isn't it isn't just simply about legal protections being available it's also about all of these new this new um, forms of media circulation being available as well as the repurposing of old ones so it's really actually interesting what both of you are saying about TV that TV sort of seemed as if it was going you know the way of you know the 8 track or something and then suddenly it comes back around and the genius of transparent is that it's able to use TV to basically tell us or represent for us the complexity of transgender lives in much in the same way that the diaristic impulse of this book does. So that the trans life isn't just this one singular life lived alone, separate from cultural norms, but is completely embedded, is episodic, goes up and down, has an arc, and all of those things. Um, Zachary, you're talking about L.A. And I felt when I was looking at the book um, that L.A. was almost a bit player. In, uh, in the narrative of a relationship. So whether it's the fact that you, you move into this house that Ron Athey you know, had been living in and he vacates to go off and live in, in London... And so there's a kind of, there's a history, again, a history of performance culture, a history of the experimental uh, um, art making here in L.A., uh, and, and the house itself has a kind of presence. So the house, L.A., L.A. light, um, the, the relationship between light and shadow that is so much also about the history of film in L.A., um, you know, was there a, do you have a sense of that, that L.A. is like almost a character in the book? Yeah, and the haunted house uh, was also a character. <laughs> yeah, we could retitle it a "Relationship in a Haunted House." Um, so yeah, that house is just right nearby in uh, Sunset Junction, 
it was built in 1917, almost 100 years ago. It was never renovated. And in Shigon Rogue, the walls are crumbling, which was a real thing that was happening because they were these old plaster walls that were literally, like, had never been replaced. So we tore them down for the sake of the film um, and rebuilt them. But I think the house, the city of Los Angeles, um, are both characters, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the house has a certain history that's so palpable. Yeah. Um, and Ron has been there now for 25 years. I think he's been there since 1991 or 92. So not only were we stepping into his personal history, but like all of the histories that came before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles and 11 years ago, it was such a different city. Um, it feels like it's evolved in such a way over the past decade. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, to, like when looking through the book, I'm sometimes reminded of the ways in which it's changed. Yeah. Well, it's almost like at that point in LA, it was you know it was a lot cheaper actually uh, eight years ago in Los Angeles, and you could kind of live with really low overhead. We were basically in a really long-term sublet on our friend Ron Nathy's place, and it was really inexpensive rent. So we were able to sort of kind of just be weird and not really have full-time jobs, or you know, and and I feel like Los Angeles has you could go have some weird you know house up in the hills and just turn into a crazy person making weird stuff all by yourself and you know documenting the light I mean that's that is something that's unique to this city that's not true of, of many other cities at all um, and I hope it's not bygone you know um, but yeah but it certainly is bygone in, in Sunset Junction <laughs> um, but yeah that, that house has a really interesting history there's a number of other artists that lived there over the years Larry Pittman Larry Pittman that's right uh, well Vaginal Davis mm-hmm. had all of her stuff in the garage so she would come back to Los Angeles periodically to rummage through suitcases, and that's how we met her. Yeah. It was featured in uh, the Bruce LeBruce film, Hustler White, if anybody's seen that, the, Ron, the scene when Ron Athey gets mummified in the living room, that was our living room. So it had a really, uh, you know, I actually Kim, didn't think... Kim Gordon. Yeah, Kim Gordon was rumored to... And there's there. somebody, there's a famous painter, John something... Anyways, the landlord. Um, you guys want to start throwing out painters sh- named John? <laughs> I don't think it was all the uh, The landlord liked artists. She was really um, cranky uh, and wouldn't fix anything, but she really liked artists. It was a funny thing. So it was kind of a little incubation, a little incubator that we yeah. fell into. And Ron, meanwhile, was in London in Delagrace Volcano's uh, flat. Yeah. You know, so there's a kind of some sort of equilibrium between these these art worlds that people are making available to each other. That's fantastic. So let's let's actually talk about the. Um, the relationship and the the representation of transition within it. I mean, you know, as you said, it's it's a documentation also of the changing nature of LA. It's not just simply the case that the bodies shift and change, but everything changes. And the book is able to keep up with that kind of constant motion in a way that I found really moving. I mean, literally moving. Um, but I wonder, um, you know, how you understood yourselves in relationship to one another and was it um, was this 
helpful, confusing, orienting, disorienting to be, you know, intimately, erotically involved with another trans person, which is often represented as an almost an impossibility or an improbability in relationship to trans lives. Uh, that if you're going to transition, fine, now presumably you will want to be erotically involved with a cisgendered or a queer person, but not necessarily another trans person. So how does, you know, what kinds of um, meaning does that trans-trans relationship have for you? I wish it happened more often. I, one thing I was saying about it the other day is that um, that it's that's that's sad. That's rare about it is that it was a way for us to really learn about each other's gender histories, not just for the sake of the directions in which we were going, which that was a part of it, but also to learn about each other's um, gender histories in terms of our queer communities that we had come out of. So for me to be able to learn more about the sort of trans feminine and gay male sort of patrilineage and culture and likewise for Zachary to learn more about the sort of the lesbian community and the sort of, you know, feminist punk scene that I had come up out of, for that cross-pollination to happen between queer people is not horribly common. I mean, I shouldn't, horribly is the wrong adjective. It's not, you know, it's not very common, unfortunately. Um, you know, I wish more gay men dated lesbians, like that, or something like that. But because we're kind of little quarantined in, in these ways, where if we're really about deconstructing patriarchy and gender and norms, like we're missing a big piece by not kind of crossing with our, you know, the full spectrum and the queer kind of world. But um, yeah, when we got together, it was very surprising for both of us. We weren't seeking it out. It was sort of out of the blue and very new and. Um, and there wasn't a word for it. And then, you know, the language would break down about, like, you know, how do you identify? Are you LGB? You know, what's your sexual orientation? And I was like, well, there's not really a word. You'd say queer, I guess, but you wouldn't... There was no word and is no word to be dating an opposite trans person. And when you're trans... I mean, you know, we kind of joked that we'd call it uh, flip backwards, reverse heterosexual, or something like that. <laughs> what do we call it? I think it was a cross-gender reverse heterosexual relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I recommend everyone try it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think it really actually speaks to our origin, which is that we both as like young adolescents discovered queerness as a way of being and not only because of yeah. people like Jack Halperstam and Kate Bornstein and you know um, identified as queer not only as a sexual orientation but as a gender uh, category um, so we weren't necessarily kind of restricted to these expectations but it did catch us by surprise. It wasn't something that we were seeking out, but there was no confusion about it. It just happened. And that was the um, piece that was so serendipitous. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How did that play out in terms of the kinds of communities that you moved within? I mean, obviously you were part of this kind of fabulous queer community of LA that Wu and others would stage and create in clubs and, and events. But then, you know, was there a sort of intimate community within which you were able to be legible? Or, you know, what, what kind of community did you, did you bring into your relationship? 
Um, you know, I think that it actually was a really diverse community. I think yeah. that there are divisions between trans women communities and trans men right. communities, and those are um, very real. Um, you know, I think certainly for me, like a, as a trans woman coming out of kind of a club scene, out of like a queer nightlife tradition, um, whereas Reese was coming more from a liberal arts and kind of social activism, um, and those are worlds that don't coincide or intersect very often. Um, so we kind of found ourselves in these this formative stage of our development as adults, kind of going through puberty for a second time, and discovered this open horizon where gender didn't exist. And I think when you are trans and you're in a relationship with a cis person, you do have to do some transplaning every once in a while. Um, and you're certainly conscious early in, in the stages of a relationship with a cis person that you have to, um, I don't know, be hyper-conscious of your gender performance. And we were in such a vulnerable space as all trans folks are early in transition um, but it was a completely free space because of the world that we created together mm. that's nice um, the book is really playful I, I just also want to say like, there are a couple of things that really stand out when you, when you read through the book and you look through the, the images one is the passionate intensity of the relationship that comes across both in these you know quiet intimate moments sometimes involving only one body sometimes both bodies um, and sometimes it's in the writing that is all around the edges um, of the relationship the notes that um, Zachary's uh, um, exchange um, so there's also a sense of a time of life that you capture beautifully that youthful Wow, not just we're in a trans relationship, but relationship, you know, that moment where you realize that maybe you want to be with someone in an enduring way. Um, um, and it comes at a certain time that I, I found you captured really, really well. But there are a couple of moments that are really playful that stand out that are about the non-representation in the book of, shall we say, genitalia, right? So there's a lot of imagery of intimacy, a lot of imagery of bodies, friction, surfaces touching. There isn't that kind of, you know, giving in to the voyeuristic desire to see the trans body. But there are these moments where you have the... Um, you have the oranges. Uh, do you remember that sort of? Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that yeah. There's a grapefruit. There's, there's a grapefruit. eggs. Exactly. Then there's a sausage. Uh, and there's a sausage. Exactly. For breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know something that yeah we certainly taught when we so the way that the book actually we didn't really say how the book came about which we did say how the relationship came about uh, and that we documented we had all these pictures da 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 doing other things, making films, being people. And then um, uh, Zachary had a studio visit with Stuart Comer, who was guest curating for the Whitney Biennial. He came over. We were showing him some of our work together, including She Gone Rogue, and then some other stuff. And then finally we're like, oh, we also have these pictures. I don't know. 
if you want to take a look at them. And it was a bit of an afterthought, and then that it was so funny that that became then the thing, and we weren't really expecting that. And um, we were open to it, but we were also very cognizant about that um, uh, the pressure, I guess, to um, the kind of prurience, to kind of abide to the pr the prurience of, of you know people wanting to know and see and and we were very clear about creating boundaries of like what we felt good about, but yet not also also not censoring things for the sake of the audience either. You know what I mean? So kind of you know because if you're sen if you're overly censoring, you're still um, you're still being affected by other prying eyes too, right. you know. So we're still kind of for us, by us, and we wanted to be authentic to our perspectives and to what was real. But yeah, we, you know, there was a lot that didn't go in the book and go into the exhibition as well, just because uh, we weren't really gonna play that game. So right. yeah, and ultimately it was the passing of time that determined the ability to show the work. It was, you know, I mean, it, we had amassed this incredible archive, thousands of images, um, and it wasn't until years had passed that we realized that it was inadvertently capturing our gender transitions. That was never the intent. Like, that was never the centerpiece. That was just the thing that was, you know, happening inside of us. Which, going back to Transparent a little bit, we talked about this the other day, but... Um, you know, this, this, and what I said earlier about not leading with a sort of didactic trans explanation for something, it was always important to us in, in m most of our projects to almost backseat the trans issue. You know, have a narrative first, have a, uh, an, an arc, have a something somebody's after and some kind of context, and then there, they happen, there happens to be this trans representation or identity that unfolds within this sort of fabric, but it's not really the point. Because if it's the point, yeah. it's sort of, it's, first of all, it's boring to us, you know, and we just try to make work that we think, you know, is on the level of what we're talking about and let the kind of world catch up to it. And that, in fact, is how it, it works best, I think. But this is something we talked about, you know, in narrative construction too. We talked about this the other day on Transparent, like in the early days of talking with Jill Solway about some of the approaches to the show. You know, we talked a lot about like, well, you know, maybe there's this gender transition thing that happens is happening in the background, but the argument between the people is totally about something else, and there's all these other things happening, and you almost forget that there's this other piece of the like, gender transition happening in the background. And I think that's a powerful way to talk about representation in general. Yeah, I think the more specific you are, the more universal it is. And that was kind of a, a mantra that we arrived at at some point when we were making She Gone Rogue, especially, um, that you don't have to teach people in a direct or literal way, yeah. but by being specific about your own life, um, there's always going to be access points where a viewer can understand it and identify with it because it's specific and it's not hitting you over the head with an explanation. Maybe I'll ask one more question because I'm sure people have uh, lots to say. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact that the book is very cognizant of the history of representation of trans bodies and it, it enters into the flow of that history. But what about in terms of the future and how do you think it speaks to younger people? When we were talking earlier this week, um, 
We talked about the way in which language has become a really big deal for younger people, whether it's in terms of pronoun usage or how you talk about the trans body, whether you say male or female assigned at birth or whether you say a transgender man or whether you drop the transgender and just say man, right? We're quite interested in linguistic correctness. Um, and you said, Zachary, at one point that you literally didn't have a language for what this relationship was. And instead, you give us this visual archive and a visual language that in fact is much more effective in capturing the nuance and the subtleties of not just of a relationship between trans people but of what it means to live in a trans body that on the one hand is always being visibly read as trans and on the other hand is often being ignored as trans and both of those things happening at once. So into this moment that people are calling the transgender tipping point into a moment where there's actually a bit of a gap between younger trans people and people of your generation, certainly people of my generation, how do you think the book... um, enters into a contemporary conversation and what kind of legacy will it will it stage, I guess? Well, none of those labels are present in the book. And, you know, I always put my humanity at the forefront of my identity. So when people ask how I identify, I say I identify as a human. <laughs> because I think you just go for the lowest common denominator. <laughs> um, and ultimately, we're all trying to access each other's humanity. Um, when we really start to like parse out all of the details and specifics, um, I think it's good. It, it feels good for people to have a definition um, to fit in. You know, I think at some point it's helpful, um, but only for so long. And yeah, I think the. I mean, it's interesting because She Gone Rogue to us is this film that we put so much work into and it's so layered and complicated and there's so much to unlock in terms of meaning. But then this photo project was the thing that really spoke to people because it was so direct and it was about to humans. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a double-edged sword in a way because, you know, you want... If, you, if there is no word for something, it feels as though it's not legitimate and, you know, you, you feel not reflected. But on the other hand, I also like to, once there is a word, sort of rebel against not using it. You know what I mean? And then that's kind of reclaiming ourselves again in, in a way. And, you know, whether it's She Gone Rogue or this film I made several years ago called The Thing or other, other projects we've done, there's something very powerful about unnaming and not naming the transness or the otherness or the difference, you know? And I actually hope that that's where we're going next. Mm-hmm. And You know what I mean? And um, and then also back to the sort of the visual uh, language of it, and I guess what I hope is one of the legacies is, and, and I think this pertains to all of our work, but is that the, it's not so much about the subject but almost in a way the photographer because I think in a way that's one of the things um, that's unique, not, you know, it's not the only time this has ever happened, but the f- I remember when we were, for instance, uh, installing the photographs um, at the Whitney, someone asked us, oh, this is great, who was the photographer? Like, assuming it was a third person. It was a friend of ours. I won't say who it but, um, it was somebody that we knew, which is why it was so, anyways. There was, it was an assumption that there was a cisgender f- f- photographer. 
Right. You know, that we were the subjects of this thing, which is, of course, that that is the history of this right. kind of work, and not to denigrate any examples of that whatsoever, but I think that that is actually, uh, to me, a key, and I hope what changes things going forward, and it's also, you know, it's the work we're doing in television, it's the work we're doing in filmmaking, it's work that this particular work in photography is putting, you know, the subject, making them the author, rather than just the subject, and I think that's really the key for it. Right. What do you think? Uh, do people have comments or questions, thoughts, statements, manifestos? Yes, Make no? it really inappropriate. <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you for coming to the store. Um, uh, and I'm actually amazed that we have so many people here. So when we've done trans events or just LGBT events, would be like a smatter. We'd be happy with like 20 people, so we have 70 people at the store. It's like really amazing. Mm. Um, which is sort of speaking about what's going on in the world. Um, and I know that maybe there are some some people who um, were actually kind of like disappointed that we're mainstreaming. <laughs> you know, you have someone like Janine Cordova, like we were outlaws, you know, or John Retchie says, we used to be like this really revolutionary, exciting underground people. Now we're getting married and joining the army. You know, one said that the only people who want to get married and join the army are gay people. Yeah. So can you speak to that about sort of like how do we maintain identity yeah. in the community and yet at the same time our rights and all that stuff? You know, I think that outlaw identity is great if you're able to survive. Um, and I think that outlaw identity is very comfortable for many people who still have a certain amount of access. Um, so when you really think about the full picture of who the trans community is, it's one of the most diverse communities that I have ever encountered um, and certainly one of the most disenfranchised because it's you know still pretty impossible for us to find viable employment. And then you have the intersections of race compounding a situation that's um, so dire that it's literally um, the difference between life and death. Um, I embrace an outlaw spirit. I always will. I think that Reese and I are, well, we're 33, um, the same age. And we're kind of on that line in between Generation Y and the millennial generation. So we kind of are able to see things in a way, um, understand very clearly where we're coming from and what the reference points are and what the anchors are. Um, but then to also see the direction that we're moving towards. Um, it's definitely a concern. I was having a conversation with Ron Athey the other day who said, you know, the more people there are in the world, the more homogenized it will become. And that's just a, a fact of, you know, any given culture or civilization. Like, there's something that just happens where um, at some point we start to lose our individuality a little bit. It's always a concern when a marginalized group of people is usurped by consumer culture, by capitalism, before those folks are being taken care of adequately. So it's like this weird line that we're on, and we're kind of like seeing things um, on both sides of that line. But we certainly won't be able to understand what it all means until uh, we're further down. 
further down the road. Plus, there's a big difference between um, you know wanting to get married and join the army, and participating in the kind of cultural production um, that that Reese and Zachary are engaged in. That, as as I've tried to say, is at many many different levels at once, which is perhaps the only way to engage uh, in such a complex um, terrain, you know, of cultural production. It's not high and low anymore. It's it's a million different grades in between. So the, it would be it would be wrong, I think, to conflate a book like this with any kind of mainstreaming. I mean, it's not like you guys are not going to get wealthy from the sales of relationship. This, what the intervention that the book makes is something very, very different. Uh, and it does, and, and there's no platform that's, you know, from which someone is making a, a, a powerful speech about trans inclusion, as you keep saying. This is m- a much more subtle intervention and probably much more effective for being so. Well, I would just, you know, it reminds me of, for instance, all the, like, gay bars closing, and I just feel like we kind of need to challenge ourselves to just hold on to subculture, and it's really up to every individual out there that we, you know, the internet is not a community. It's not the answer to community, (laughs) and we need to, like, yeah, you know, so... We need to get out there and support our local leather bars and go out. You know what I mean? We need to keep this stuff alive because if we don't have it, it's just, you know, it's going to be like the Netflixing of video stores. And we're just going to, you know, we're going to, it's going to be such a loss to not continue to support our, our niches. We need these niches and we need our little spaces. So I really hope that just, you know, this is, a, you guys are like our neighbors. We're all, I'm sure, mostly Angelinos. We need to keep local businesses and niches is alive. So I just being a part and supporting whatever you can I think is one is one way to go about it. Other comments or questions? Well, somebody's getting up the nerve to speak. Uh, we should also take a moment to recognize Luis de Jesus, Jay Wingate, and Jesse Croxton, who are all here and who shepherded both the book and the series of photographs. Thank you guys for being here. <laughs> So you guys, you guys did not take the photos yourself. <laughs> oh my god, was that unclear? No, we took no, them we all did. ourselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, Sorry. That, that got confusing at the end. Oh, so, yeah. Oh. Oh yeah. So just to be clear, no, no. It was a. Oh yeah. Sorry. My friend asked us who took the pictures of us, and we were like, "You're an artist. We, you know that we're artists." But but, but let me just say, they're acting like they're snapshots, and actually, they're very beautiful photographs that are quite complicated in the construction, and that's why you're not sure when you're reading the book. Like, is this not project? Is this a diary? Because there's there's just there's just beautiful composition there. So it's it's not exactly snapshots either, and that seems yeah, important. I was, like, oh my, I was imagining somebody like living with you, taking pictures. <laughs> <laughs> we had a reality TV crew the whole time. No, just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, we took all the pictures. Um, I, I've seen the book, and it's gorgeous, so congratulations. Thank you. I wanted to follow up on some of the points that Jack was referring to in terms of some of the aesthetic choices, and I really just, um, it's wonderful to hear that there's a huge archive that you drew from and edited from, 
And can you talk just a little bit more about that selection process from the archive mm -hmm. and what you were looking for? Because I think when I was kind of going through it, I kept thinking, yes, there's, you know, it, it really flips on conventions in so many ways. Like, I don't know how often mm -hmm. you all are kind of going on, you know, talking about that. But yeah, just more about the archive and some of the selections. Well, from just speaking for myself, I think I thought a lot about editing, like film editing, and because I. I've said already a couple times I have a filmmaking background and I got a master's in filmmaking at CalArts when I moved here and I was working as a, an editor for a long time and um, that really to me was a driving force in how we worked with that archive and you know it's not intended to tell a literal story or to be chronological um, it's not it's kind of more to me like I think it's, it's Werner Herzog talks about ecstatic truth that's kind of like a truth that's not literally the truth but it's truthier than the boring old regular truth um, and that to me was like you know, how do we make this into um, what feels like a uh, a story that's 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 realer than what actually happened in a way that's not lying, but it's a you know, does that make sense? And um, yeah, I think that. And then I also thought of it a lot like like film stills. I mean, just to me, that's maybe that's not how my mind works, but it was you know that was a big force of how I was thinking about it. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, well, with our assistant Derek Corns, we printed out. Derek also needs to be named for helping shepherd the project. We printed like four by six postcard size photographs, and there was a few hundred, oh, 600, 700 photographs. So it was in like our first round <laughs> of selection, and then we narrowed it down to forty. Yeah, pinning them on the wall and. Yeah, so the actual process of editing was pretty immense because the material um, and some great images didn't make it. Um, thankfully, we expanded the selection in the book because we had more space. So there's, I think, twice as many photographs in the book than there was in the original uh, Whitney installation. Um, somebody just stole it. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking, I don't know. Hi. There was someone who wanted to buy it. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm cool. I mean. um, sorry to hijack this thing, but this is the last copy that we have right oh, now. Wow. Bid, so bids take, will be taken. <laughs> so we can do special orders for everyone here. So. Then do you want them to go up to the count just so yeah, that everybody knows? Talk to anyone who works here. We can help you. So go to the cash register, mm -hmm. pre-buy it, pre-sell the book. Reese yeah. and I are going to come back tomorrow. If you want to sign copy... Uh, we can prepay for it, and if uh, you just want a copy with no signature, you can just order it, and we'll call you when it's here. Yeah, and yeah. if you leave your name, we'll write your name. We'll dedicate it to you when we sign it. And chances are we know who you are already, so it'll be really, you know, personalized. How long did it take you to get to that 40 to add that down? It was a while. It was, yeah. A couple months It was least. a few months. I, it feels like, I want to say like two months at least, or something, of, of editing. And we would put them out. It was a out. Christmas holiday, actually. We hold ourselves up for... Like almost six months. Was it six months? months? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Thank you. <laughs> we, printed, we printed and printed and printed, and then would like pin them and change our minds. It was a really, yeah, it was like editing a, a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's time consuming. <laughs> 
you know, there's that image, I think it's on the cover of the book of the, the two of you, you, you know, sitting together entwined. And you, you'd have to say, building on, on what Zachary's saying, that the real theme of the book is actually love. Um, and that's, that's what is so appealing about exactly the selection of the photographs. Some of them are clearly selected for their aesthetic value. But there's also, the narrative is love, and it is untidy and disorderly, and it doesn't have that arc from a beginning through a middle to an end. It just is um, in this in this sort of disorderly way that is is really beautiful, um, moving and compelling. And I just you know I really want to thank both of you uh, for your work and for sharing your your relationship with the rest of us. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.